In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Supreme Game Changer. This is a dark and disturbing day for America. We've got less than 200 days until Election Day. Roe versus Wade, in that sense, is on the ballot. Welcome to Political Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, with Patricia Murphy, your other host, and we are two of the political insiders here at the AJC. A reminder, if you're just listening to us for the first time, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ahead on the podcast, we're going to talk about how Donald Trump is phoning it in for David Perdue. But first, Patricia, the enormous news of the week, uh, the news broke by Politico of the draft opinion from the Supreme Court showing that they are poised to overturn Roe versus Wade, the landmark 1973 decision that guaranteed the right to abortion to American women. Patricia, to say this is a momentous event in American politics seems like a a drastic understatement. It is so huge. It's going to take us days and days to really unpack the potential effects. I think there are, there's a cascade of effects, first of all, on women's immediate lives. Uh, Second of all, on um, the potential legal effects on other issues that are also grounded in the concept of a right to privacy in the Constitution. And then finally, in politics, because certainly the political um, ramifications of this are enormous. And the politics, I think, at play on the Supreme Court, um, the suspicion of politics and just the political overlay on an institution that most members of the Supreme Court had hoped to keep apolitical um, could also have its own effects as well. And so we have just a lot to work through. The part that I'm most focused on right now is just the effect on women's lives immediately, especially in Georgia, what the Georgia law could revert back to very soon. And then um, obviously the political ramifications will be immediate after that. Yeah. And as you said, there's so much to unpack here. First, though, is that this is a draft opinion. So it can still change in ways both minor and major. Um, if, if it's released at all, we have a strong suspicion it will be released in some form or fashion. Um, because even today, um, even as we're taping this, the Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts verified its authenticity, but also said that you know it is, it is not a final version of that opinion. And, and this is sort of how the behind the scenes works at the court. We're just getting an inner peek at it, which is these draft opinions circulate. And Justice Samuel Alito, who penned this opinion, he is giving it to both his critics and to his supporters to answer their issues, um, to try to keep the majority intact. 
it, uh, this looks like a at least a what a, a five four majority who's backing this decision from what Politico reported, um, but also to allay some of the uh, or at least to respond to some of the criticisms. And this is how the court process works. We've just never seen anything like this in 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 our modern history, at least with such a momentous decision being leaked. Um, uh, at least a draft version of it being leaked ahead of time. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the Supreme Court is so idiosyncratic. I think it's very hard for armchair cable quarterbacks to truly explain what's going on and understand the personal ramifications inside the court, the level of distrust this will cause between uh, justices themselves, uh, members of their staffs, their clerks. It just is a, it is so unusual. It has just not happened before for something this momentous to reach uh, public eyes before it's ready. And before it's ready means uh, the majority is not guaranteed. The decision is not guaranteed, but it has already exploded into the public consciousness as if it's going to happen. And so that in itself could change the trajectory of this. So we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but it has put the question and the very um, reality that abortion as a right for women could go away uh, within months, that has become uh, front and center and a reality where I think most women in America, including especially young women, have taken for granted this right to an abortion with certain restrictions. I think there's a large um, a large agreement that there is a balance um, in, in terms of when an abortion uh, can and should be made available. But just the idea that it could be not available at all in some states for tens of millions of American women is a political political reality that many women in America have have never even considered as possible. I think even when the Georgia law was debated and passed, there was in the back of many lawmakers' minds, you know what, this is not even going to happen in real life because the Supreme Court has a protection for women's uh, right to the right to access abortion. Uh, so we're going to pass this law. It'll get stopped in the courts. We'll move on. Um, well, that is not happening right now. It looks like, um, as a Democrat said to me earlier, the dog has caught the car, that this, uh, the longtime goal, stated goal of conservatives is very real, but the political benefit that maybe some less conservative but no less uh, uh, eager to be reelected Republicans were happy to hop on board and vote for a lot of restrictive measures. Now all of those look like they could actually become law and change the way women live their lives in America. Yeah, and Patricia, you, you spoke to this the strategy of conservatives who believe life begins at conception has been to chip away at at, at abortion um, uh, regulations. You know, to 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 slowly but surely make it harder um, for women to to get abortions. And in Georgia, this sort of culminated back in 2019 when Governor Kemp signed into law legislation that would ban abortions after a doctor could detect fetal cardiac activity, which is typically about six weeks into a pregnancy before many women even know they are pregnant. Um, and as you said, that law was almost immediately blocked by federal courts and is still pending in the federal appeals court. Um, and that's what Republicans who who backed that legislation, there was one crossover Democratic vote, but it was largely, there's about six votes crossover to, crossed over overall. Um, a few Republicans backed, uh, opposed the measure in 2019. Um, but, you know, it was passed with the understanding that it would get blocked anyway. Well, now, as you said, um, this is set to, if, if this ruling stands, and of course, there's still um, a big question mark about that, but if, if, if a version of this ruling is issued this summer, 
um, this becomes the law of the land and it has immediate ramifications, not just on millions of women, um, but also upending um, traditional campaigning. This is happening right before a midterm election. And it seems trite by comparison to 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 what's happening um, uh, to, to all these women. But also at the same time, um, this will help dictate and define our campaign election season in a way that um, in the way that we still can't reckon with. I think. Absolutely. And I think it's really important to look at our recent polling on this issue at the AJC. Um, we conducted a poll in January of this year, and 68% of Georgia voters wanted to see Roe v. Wade, up, Roe v. Wade upheld in the Supreme Court. So um, that is a minority of Georgians who wanted to see it overturned, as it looks like it could be. When you get into the uh, crosstabs of that poll, 73% of women wanted to see um, Roe v. Wade upheld and 63% of men. Now, obviously, because Georgia is a roughly 50-50, maybe 48-48-4 state, um, that means that a number of Republicans wanted to see Roe v. Wade upheld. And so when you get into the crosstabs, 43% of Republicans wanted to see Roe v. Wade upheld. So is a decision like this so meaningful to a cross-section of Republicans, um, especially Republican women, that they would be willing to vote for a Democrat? We really don't know. Um, we don't know if it would affect even these GOP primaries, if there's a selection. Um, and a lot of these are cont- contested Republican primaries. Is there a selection for Republican voters between an extreme candidate and a more moderate candidate? And uh, for the first time, they'll be answering this question, what would you do in June, if this if this law goes into effect, and so uh, voters are going to have decisions to make very quickly, with the possibility that this is a law that they could be living with really soon. Yeah, and Patricia, maybe this is too simplistic, but I think you can almost divide the political reaction to three broad camps. Um, first, you have Republicans who were sort of cautiously optimistic, but they were worried that this opinion was leaked to Politico. Um, this draft opinion in order to to pressure and to intimidate the conservative jurists to change their minds. And so Governor Kemp um, probably best defines that category, saying it was a you know, shocking, um, uh, you know, a shocking development to see the court, uh, you know, have its privacy infringed upon and, and how dare this leaker do what he did or she did. Um, but at the same time, you know, pointing to his history of supporting anti-abortion laws. In the second camp, you had other conservatives um, who said almost immediately that the state should take more strident action and should go into a special session later this year or take action early next year and completely outlaw abortions, go beyond um, the the so-called fetal heartbeat law um, that, that Georgia passed three years ago and ban all abortions or at least or at least have more stringent restrictions against abortions than that law. And then of course you've got Democrats who were shocked and horrified and outraged and were hoping that this will energize their base and give them sort of a unifying midterm message um, to talk about on a campaign trail that's been dominated so far by issues they don't really want to talk about, like higher gas prices and rising inflation and economic uncertainty. I asked Congresswoman Carolyn Bordeaux about the leaked draft opinion a few hours ago. How do you think that affects the Democrats' midterm message? Does it give Democrats a unifying, something to sort of rally around? Uh, so this is the, uh, the, the leaked dec- decision about Roe v. Wade. I, I think it reiterates how high the stakes are for everyone in these elections. And, you know, women 
are going to lose the right to choose in Georgia. Uh, we know Georgia's already passed a ban after six weeks, the, the quote-unquote heartbeat bill. Um, it is devastating for women's health. It is devastating for women's futures um, if we don't have choice. You won, was it two years ago? You won two years ago because of my year time is falling. A year and a half ago. Because <laughs> yeah. of, of suburban women, in part, who came out, rushed to the polls. Do you think we'll see a, a similar energizing effect because of this if, if this ruling, um, if this opinion becomes a ruling? I think there's a very good chance of that. I think this is really devastating. And you see women uh, who may vote Republican sometimes, and they will come over and vote Democratic if they think that choice is on the line. Our colleague Tia Mitchell also talked to Stacey Abrams, uh, the Democratic gubernatorial nominee, essentially, uh, about the same issue. Here's what she said. It is a sad moment that this campaign will, of course, have to focus on and have to explain as often and as intently as we can that a woman's right to choose is about not only her right to an abortion, but it's about her right to bodily autonomy, her right to an economy, her right to a future. And yes, this campaign will absolutely lean into and lead on that issue. So Patricia, we've got the three different camps. Um, and, you know, in, in some sense, you can understand that, yes, this will energize Democratic supporters, you know, uh, abortion rights supporters. Um, but we've also heard from so many conservative activists and politicians saying that it would also energize them because this is this if this opinion is released, if this is, becomes a ruling in some form or fashion, this is the culmination of a decades long campaign um, uh, for conservatives to prove or to get the court to to acknowledge their view that life begins at conception. Yes. And I think this is going to be most important in statewide races, like the one that Stacey Abrams is going to be running, because a number of these um, uh, districts are at this point so gerrymandered. We know that a Democrat is going to win most likely in the seventh. We know that a Republican is most likely going to win in the sixth. And even a huge monumental decision like this, once the sixth has been drawn to be so heavily Republican, it's most likely going to still be a Republican hold. But when you get into the conversation about in that U.S. Senate race between Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock, could there be a bigger contrast right now between Raphael Warnock, who calls himself a pro-choice pastor, and Herschel Walker, who has gone after him directly on that issue in particular and said, how can you be a pro-choice pastor? Um, I think when we talk about this, though, we have to push candidates and uh, members of Congress and state leaders to go past these buzzwords of pro-choice, pro-life, blah, you know, the Georgia bill goes much further than just abortion. It also gives personhood to fertilized embryos in a woman's uterus. And that means that that embryo has all the rights of personhood. And that was a, a huge priority for conservatives. But what that means practically is that now those embryos are people for the purposes of alimony, for the purposes of tax deductions. Those are now dependents on people's income taxes. If you're pregnant, even if you're just a little bit pregnant, that is, it's at any stage of development. Um, it's also for um, uh, custody agreements. There's just a, this Pandora's box of legalities that this Georgia law is about to put into play that I don't really think have been fully considered, even by the lawmakers who 
passed the law, not that they didn't support it or didn't oppose it. Um, It was debated, but it was a relatively, all of these state house debates are relatively cloistered. You know, it's for the people who can fit in the room during the committee hearings and the people who bother to, to, uh, you know, pull up the live feed online. Um, It's not really a well-known piece of legislation quite yet. And now that it looks like it could very well become law, people need to get up to speed on it and start to um, be ready to ask questions about it and answer questions about it. You know, you're right, because even during the debate in, in 2019, I heard a lot of Republican supporters privately say, oh, well, we'll vote for it because we know it won't ever become go into effect, right? They knew that in the back of their mind, it was going to be blocked by the federal court system, that Roe v. Wade was going to be continue as a, as a principle, as a bedrock principle in American jurisprudence. And even when we saw Donald Trump appointees to the Supreme Court vetted by um, Republican senators who um, also agree with Ro- or abortion rights and agreed with Roe v. Wade, they asked uh, these justices, uh, you know, kind of a litmus test question and and liked their answers. And now those senators, including Senator Collins from Maine, feel betrayed um, today by at least this draft opinion. Um, so it's kind of upended um, how we view abortion on a campaign trail. And lately, especially lately, we haven't heard you know that much about abortion rights on the campaign trail between Governor Kemp or Stacey Abrams or former Senator Perdue. Uh, we're hearing a lot more about guns and healthcare and, and education and all the sort of hot button issues we talked about in, uh, over, over the last year in the legislative session. Well, that's about to change dramatically because as we talked about on the Republican side of the race, there's this new divide between Governor Kemp and former Senator Perdue, who is trying to gain traction, who's behind in the polls, behind in fundraising. He is now saying he would support a legislative special session ASAP um, to try to outright ban abortion. Governor Kemp hasn't chimed in on that yet. Um, From what I understand, he is very skeptical and averse to doing so, in part because it doesn't, you don't have to go back far in your memory bank to remember what a drawn out fight it was in 2019 to pass um, the, the abortion restrictions that he signed into law. I mean, it passed with one vote in the Georgia House to spare was this dramatic, emotional, divisive process. Um, several Republican suburban lawmakers defected, either abstained from voting or, or, or voted against it. Um, there was concerns that um, several of these suburban seats in, in the Georgia legislature were lost in part because of that su- support for the anti-abortion measure. Um, and so putting lawmakers through that again, let's say in August or, 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 or even later next year, uh, later this year, I should say, is not an easy prospect at all. It's not at all. And even though those congressional districts have been gerrymandered to be relatively predictable, you can't say the same thing about the state house districts and the state senate districts, particularly in the northern arc of the metro Atlanta suburbs. There are a number of Republicans there, um, and even outside of some of the other metro areas, uh, a number of Republicans who don't have an 80-20 split in the uh, partisan makeup of their districts. It's a closer district. Um, They do need to reach across the aisle, um, at least to minimize their losses on the other side. And when you have 70, you know, almost three quarters of Georgia women oppose overturning Roe v. Wade. And we haven't really seen a poll on exactly how they feel about this particular bill going into law, um, which again, expands uh, the conversation beyond just abortion into um, the rights of embryos. And that is just a whole different ball of wax. It's a huge unknown to introduce into an election cycle when Republican lawmakers 
felt like they had it pretty well buttoned up. They had their set of issues. They had their talking points. They had all of the conservative bills that they passed to take into the primary elections. And then they had the other set of bills that they passed that they can take into the November elections, including hate crimes, including um, the tax cut, including teacher pay raises. And now you've introduced this concept of um, a heated abortion, abortion battle um, months before a November election, if there were to be a special session. I don't know that that is um, a pill that Republican leaders are ready to swallow. So we've talked about how new restrictions in Georgia are going to be more difficult to pass. Um, but let's talk now about how what, what Washington Democrats are now considering, because it's as of this taping, it's really hard to see any a legitimate push to codify Roe v. Wade, to to make it part of federal law, because you'd have to get past the 60-vote threshold, the filibuster-proof threshold in the U.S. Senate. And um, even though there are some Republican senators who are upset with the draft opinion, it's hard to see them blowing up the filibuster, um, even over such such a momentous decision like this one. Uh, We're not sure yet you know, wherever everything stands. And we're not sure if De- how House and Senate Democrats will, will make this a major issue. But we do, we have already heard from Senator Raphael Warnock, who said that he will fight to protect women's access to abortions. We're just not sure what that fight will look like. That's right. I think that we can probably expect to see um, some kind of executive order come out of the White House. Uh, I know that uh, there has been conversation about trying to eliminate the filibuster in the Senate over this issue in particular, and pretty broad agreement that it would they could have uh, at least modestly more success than the voting rights conversation had in terms of over getting rid of the filibuster, overturning the filibuster. I don't know that they have the votes for that. Um, I don't know that in a 50-50 Senate either that all Democrats would really be ready to get rid of the filibuster knowing full well that they could be losing control of the Senate in a matter of months and then have that rule turned around on them. So uh, that is a, you know, like you said, I think that's a pretty dicey proposition, but I am certain Democrats will use any tool available to move the ball forward um, to erect some sort of even like temporary fencing of protection for women's rights uh, to abortion in the meantime. Um, what exactly that could look like, what could stand up to legal muster if this t- this kind of decision were to go into effect and were to overturn Roe v. Wade, you don't even know what legally you would need to do to start over. I'm sure there are lawyers all over Washington um, trying to figure that out today. But in the meantime, you know, Democrats have their talking points, Republicans have their talking points, and that's pretty much where they are right now. Yeah. And this draft opinion was dated back in February. So we're not sure how substantially, if at all, it's changed in the three or four, three months or so since then. And we're not sure how much it will change in the next month or so as well. So there's so many question marks. Um, but we do know, and we can say this authoritatively, we do know that if if Roe v. Wade was struck down, um, the people who would affect the most are the, the people who struggle financially disproportionately are women of color because wealthier women will still be able to travel to states that do not outlaw abortion. They will, they will still, and, and uh, by most studies, about 250 to 300 miles away. So these are not just going across the border to Alabama or anything like that. Um, it's, it's a longer haul and women of means, um, will be able to afford that. And women who don't have those means will either, um, not be able to make that trip or they'll have to rely on, on outside groups that will help them do that. And, and it's just, it, it's, it's another hurdle. Um, and that is going to be a focus of our coverage at the AJC 
uh, going forward too. We're going to try to cover all facets of this, the political debates, the social debate, the religious debate, um, all different uh, subsets. We had, uh, you know, an hour long staff meeting not that long ago um, to talk about all the different variations and all the different um, stories we'll be covering. Um, but that is a very important part of the story is what's happening, you know, what will happen um, to the women who no longer, if this ruling um, ends up standing, you know, being issued, the women who know, who suddenly don't have access um, to abortions as readily as they do now. Yeah. And in the Georgia law in particular, um, for any women, it sets this precedent of opening up women's health records to local district attorneys if they are going forward with prosecutions on abortion. It also has an exception for um, for rape and incest up to 20 weeks. But a woman has to first file a police report and make that report available um, to prove that this was a matter of rape and incest. It also says that there's an exception for a medical emergency, but it does not include a mental health emergency. And so there are all kinds of pieces of this Georgia law that could set precedent in other areas that I think are really important um, for all women in Georgia. And so that's a, it's just a lot to unpack and to, um, to go through when it, I, it really feels like that kind of review was not as detailed and rigorous uh, at the time, knowing that uh, this bill, because of Roe v. Wade, was unlikely to go into law. Yeah, as we've said so many times in the show, Georgia is the the premier test of Donald Trump's influence in the nation. It's the premier battleground state in the nation. Um, and now, as State Senator Jen Jordan, who is running for attorney general, she says it, it now could be um, the premier battleground over abortion rights in the nation. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, along with your other host, Patricia Murphy, and we are two of the political insiders at the AJC. And we are also two of the authors of The Morning Jolt, which comes to you every morning um, fresh. I work on it late at night. Patricia works on it abnormally early. Um, and I rest assured that the, your latest jolt will focus not only on the fallout of this draft opinion, but also how it affected the final U.S. Senate Republican debate hosted by the Atlanta Press Club, of which we'll go without Herschel Walker, who is going to be a no-show at the debate. Um, but we heard from the other Senate Republican candidates, and um, this draft opinion came up in a major way. 
We think the Morning Jolt newsletter sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics, and you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to Atlanta Journal Constitution. You can join the community now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts, and your first month of unlimited digital access is just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts, so you always know what's really going on. Well, Patricia, what's always really going on is more Republican infighting between the Donald Trump faction of the Republican Party in Georgia and those that aren't as closely aligned with the former president. And um, on Monday, Trump joined former Senator David Perdue on a tele-rally. So you had Donald Trump phoning it in for David Perdue. It wasn't a live rally. It was over the phone and we were there to listen in. And so that means you now get to listen in. Let's, Let's listen. One of the problems also is if Brian Kemp gets in, I think it's going to be very, very hard for Herschel Walker to win because I don't believe that Republicans are going to go out and vote for Brian Kemp. And if they're not voting for Brian Kemp, they're not going to be able to vote for Herschel Walker. And Herschel Walker is a great gentleman who, as you know, has my complete and total endorsement. Patricia, this is not what Herschel Walker wants to hear right now. Look, we all know that on May 25th, if, if Brian Kemp wins the Republican nomination, Donald Trump isn't going to suddenly wake up and, and, and think, oh, I like this guy now. No, he's going to continue to, to oppose him. But what Republicans are really fearing is that sort of divide is him saying exactly what he just said, which is, um, which is Brian Kemp at the top of the ticket will also bog down Herschel Walker. And Trump is doing the Republican who he endorsed, Herschel Walker, no favors um, by saying this on a tele-rally. No, um, he's almost doing the Democrats' work for them, predicting doom and gloom based on the least likely scenario happening. If David Perdue is not elected, uh, Trump says, which David Perdue is trailing rather significantly in the polls right now, but anything could happen. But if David Perdue is not elected, the entire Republican ticket is going to lose, says Donald Trump on a rally meant to pump up Republicans, provide them energy get them going into these last few weeks of early voting and uh, had them get them set up for victory. Um, It's just absolutely not helpful at all. I also don't know that that's accurate at all. I talked to a number of Republican voters earlier this week. I was up in the 14th congressional district and asked them, uh, they were David Perdue supporters as that if David Perdue does not win, let's just pretend Would you vote for Brian Kemp? Would you vote for Herschel Walker? Herschel Walker was not even a question. They're like, of course, why would I not vote for Herschel Walker? Um, The question of Brian Kemp was a little bit dicier. I did. I got some Republicans saying, oh, I would absolutely vote for Brian Kemp. All I want to do is beat Stacey Abrams. There were some other more reticent Purdue supporters who said, oh, I don't know if I could vote for Brian Kemp. Now, I have a theory that once... Uh, Republicans get past this primary and start to focus on Stacey Abrams, it is so hard for me to believe that a Republican voter, a conservative Republican voter would stay home and not vote against Stacey Abrams, even if they weren't crazy about Brian Kemp. Um, That is a that's just a scenario that is hard for me to believe because Stacey Abrams is so galvanizing for Republicans. And they know this, and we know they know this because they've been running ads against Stacey Abrams since even before she got into this race. So she is um, an incredible unifying factor for Republicans on that side. And I just don't really buy <laughs> Donald Trump's premise. But if I, if he were holding a tele-rally for me, I would rather him say the exact opposite of what he just said. 
<laughs> well, we're going to work on that whole tele rally for Patricia Murphy. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's actually weeks. not at all necessary. <laughs> I think you nailed it, though. I mean, I wrote a story a year ago saying even Republicans running for the like, county commission for local mayors, um, you know, basically running for dog catcher, were using um, Stacey Abrams as their 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 unifying villain. And so when you get into the general election phase of this campaign, once Republicans get past this infighting, the big question will, will be, will um, you know, common uh, venom towards Stacey Abram overwhelm the whole Trump factor? And overwhelm, frankly, the fact that Trump will not stop talking about Brian Kemp well into the general election phase. It's not like he won't be, on, be asked about it in interviews and on conservative talk radio and even potentially at a rally here in Georgia for someone like Herschel Walker. If w- w- will he be able to bite his tongue and not attack Brian Kemp? Probably not. And will that become a big part of our stories in a few months? Probably so. Hundred percent. So, hundred percent. I can guarantee you that, that I can see the headlines now, and, and, and they'll be uh, completely fair. And even Kemp's people will will acknowledge that we have to write about that issue because it will continue to coming up. Um, will it be enough for um, to help Stacey Abrams? You know, she's she's trying to make the most of this divide now. But in about three weeks, she she won't be able to lean on Republican divisiveness as much if there's no runoff. Uh, instead, you know, she'll be having she'll 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 have to face the full brunt of the GOP attack machine, um, all going after her, uh, just like Warnock, Senator Warnock, is already facing in many in many ways. Yes, the party's going to be over for Democrats on the Stacey Abrams campaign. Um, they've really had a cakewalk, frankly, uh, up to this point. There's only so many uh, newspaper inches. There's only so much airtime. And there has been such an unbelievable story on the Republican side with this uh, Republican infighting and the Purdue challenge to Kemp that so much of the intent, the attention um, and reporting has been uh, focused on the Republicans. And the, Rep- and the Republicans have been focused on the Republicans. They've been focused on themselves. Once they get past this primary, either in May or in June, no matter who wins, um, that will change very, very quickly, and it will change the dynamics immediately. And the first time I really started to feel that was almost today with the Supreme Court decision, because we saw um, uh, for the first time two strong responses from both sides, from the Republican side and the Democratic side. You see the ch- you see the contrast side by side, and we have not really been looking at a contrast in this governor's race up to this point. And we will start to see that contrast as the primary comes and goes. Patricia, before we sign off this episode, you spent about 12 hours up in Northwest Georgia the other day with Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. I'll play a little audio that offers a clue of why she's keeping quiet about the leaked Kevin McCarthy tape. But I also look forward to Republicans taking back the House, serving on committees, and leadership has already promised me committees, but better ones this time, and they're on record saying that. Patricia, she is looking forward to playing a bigger role in a GOP-led House if uh, Republicans flip that chamber. Why do you think that she took you and a handful of other local and national reporters on a day on the campaign trail up in Northwest Georgia? You know, that was really the subject of quite a bit of conversation among reporters saying to each other, like, why are we here? I mean, we know why we're here, but why does she want us here? Um, And I even asked her why she had brought the press along. I just could not help myself. I'm like, why? (laughs) 
why are we here? Why have you invited the president? It wasn't just the AJC who, from uh, which she has really kept arm's distance almost her entire time in Congress. Uh, there was also a reporter from Time Magazine, Molly Ball. Um, David Draper was there. Uh, Robert Draper, rather, was there from the New York Times Magazine. Or, you know, major national press outlets were there um, at her invitation. And I think it's a combination of two things. I think first she um, believes that she has been uh, misrepresented by the press, that she has been made to be this um, one-dimensional villain character, and she thinks she's much more than that and wanted to show that. Um, I think she uh, wanted also to show the support that she has in her district. And I will say, we were on this bus uh, with her. She rode with us for quite a bit, uh, with her or without her. we There would be voters just randomly on the side of the road being like, you got this girl, we love you, Marjorie. You know, like just spontaneous organic support for her. Um, that was very obvious. And then I think also um, she and her team are looking to move beyond this phase of being sort of a punchline on um, late night talk shows and making a play for some sort of uh, more enduring um, role in Congress. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean Republican leadership. It just means not being um, dismissed as a quack and a crank. And so I, that, those are my three hunches about why she was there. Mostly she said she felt like she was misunderstood and misrepresented and lied about, I think were her exact words. Um, and, uh, you know, she, she tangled with a few, with, uh, at least one reporter, there was uh, some serious, uh, some serious back and forth. Uh, but then afterwards she's like, where's Rick? I thought we were going to have lunch with Rick, you know? So it was a, this very enlightening trip. Um, I'm still trying to unpack it in my brain and it will be the, the, uh, subject of my Sunday column. Where did Rick go? Did he leave after the tangle? Rick ate downstairs. <laughs> Rick ate downstairs. We- <laughs> he- Rick was great. <laughs> he needed some time off. I love Rick. Um, I think so. He needed some quiet time. He needed some quiet time. Uh, my last question for you on this is, is um, you know, you came into this trip skeptical of Marjorie Taylor Greene's opponent's chances, right, and any of the Republicans or Democrats running against her. Um, did you leave it even more skeptical of any attempt to uh, to unseat her? Just riding around with her uh, was unlike riding around with other incumbents I've been with. There was more just spontaneous support from her, more people seeing her and just losing their minds and being like, oh, my God, you know, in a positive way, I have to say. Um, There were some detractors on the trail, however. You know, she's polarizing. And so a veteran came up to her and said, you are an embarrassment. And he was a Republican. He had been a Republican leader in the state, um, and uh, he felt very differently. So I don't know. You know, I think the one thing we learned from Bernie Sanders and uh, from some other campaigns that had a lot of um, visible surface support, you really have to wait until Election Day to figure out how deep the support goes. Um, but at least on the surface, Marjorie Taylor Greene is, is, uh, has a lot of fans in her district who... Um, really like her a lot. And one woman said, uh, one woman said, Oh my gosh, I, I feel like she's my long lost twin. I was going to run for Congress, but I don't need to because she's there. And, um, uh, when, the, when she saw her, she practically started crying. She had not seen Marjorie Taylor Greene before I uh, saw her and almost, uh, was reduced to tears. So there's a, just a level of affection for her that you don't typically see when you're out with candidates. And so it's, um, We'll have to see how the rest of the voters feel about her, including in the um, West Cobb portion of her district that we didn't go anywhere close to. 
I bet, and that is the Democratic-leaning part of her district. Patricia, I think we made some podcast history. This might have been the first time that Marjorie Taylor Greene's name was uttered in the same sentence as Bernie Sanders. So (laughs) we'll call the Guinness Book of World Records on that one. And you can count on new episodes of this podcast to come out every Wednesday and every Friday. So we will see you then on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.